Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. My name is Jeff Birch, and I'm the pastor here at Lake Oconee. And whether you're in person or, I always remember at this point, look at the camera, or on the live stream, wherever you may be uh, tuning in from, we offer you a warm welcome. Isn't it great that we're starting to do more and more new things, call them reopening things, in terms of COVID, at least incrementally, being somewhat behind us? I know it's still out there and stuff, but we're moving forward. Uh, Last week we began, and I do this as a reminder to all of you, passing the friendship pads. So if if you're at the end of the... This is almost like getting on a plane. You know when you get on a plane and the flight attendant basically has to say, you know, if you're at the exit, you do this. If you're at the end, you have a big responsibility. You've got to be the one that gets the ball rolling, starting the friendship pad. You fill it out, you pass it on to your neighbor. So if any of you are not willing to do that, time to move away from that exit row now. Okay, welcome to Lake Oconee Airlines. This is how we're doing it here. But this is my reminder One of the things we very much want to do here is to get to know people and develop friendships. So the idea is not to be threatening or intimidating in any way, shape, or form, but to get to know folks. And so if you're visiting with us this morning, we offer a very, very warm welcome to all of you. Now, where is my good friend Kent Schumacher? Kent, come on up. He's going to introduce our special guests. Thank you, Jeff. Good morning, everyone. Uh, My name is Ken Schumacher, and I'm one of the members of the mission team here at Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. And I have the distinct privilege this morning to introduce to you David and Aaron Purvis. The Purvises have served with MTW, which stands for Mission to the World, for the last 22 years in Eastern Europe, primarily in Bulgaria and Ukraine. They now are located in Athens, Greece, Please welcome David and Aaron. Thank you. Thank you so much for your prayers and uh, your support through the years as the Lord has assigned us in Eastern Europe and now to uh, Athens, Greece. I think the last time I was here, it was before uh, before we actually were in Athens, um, but we have felt your presence go with us at every step. Well, why are we in Athens? Well, I guess I would sum it up to say two things, a church and a crisis. The church, uh, the Greek evangelical church, um, had a church plant that's now become a church uh, outside of Athens. And um, it turns out they were in an area where the crisis happened. That was the refugee crisis Uh, in about 2014. Uh, large numbers of refugees began to move through Greece to get to the rest of Europe uh, from Syria where where there was civil war from Iraq, from Iran, from North Africa and that number grew to over a million had passed through Greece. Greece was in a recession uh, that had dated back to 2008 but uh, they, uh, they how can I say, they tried to be hospitable But you can imagine a small country of 11 million and millions of people passing through. Well, they put a lot of them at the old airport, which was in an area called Glyfada. And this little church of maybe 50 said, we have to help them. 
So they did. They, they collected clothes. They arranged food. They started having teams come. Uh, and uh, they did what they could. Eventually, the government closed that camp. It was their largest camp in the area of Athens. Um, and the church opened up a home. Aaron says, don't call it a home. It's an apartment building. But that's the Greek way, is you build a house, and you and the next generation are all in the same building. Anyway, they now have housing for 12 refugee families to get them off the street, out of abandoned buildings where they have been living. Um, and the church needed help with uh, looking after those refugees. Our, our part in that is teaching English, loving and serving them, and, uh, and pointing them to the Lord. Some come to uh, Athens because they have become Christians from places like Iran, uh, where their life is in danger if they stay. Others come because of war, but God works in their hearts. And uh, I mean, in summary, I would say we've seen a number respond to the gospel in the process of just loving and serving him. Um, I brought my little bag up here <laughs> uh, because it, it represents something really important to us and I think to you too. Uh, one of those dear refugees, I'm going to call her Susan, because uh, they are at risk, their families are at risk in some cases when they uh, are, are interacting with Christians. Um, anyway, she and her husband are seamstresses, seems, uh, they sew, they're tailors, and um, she came up with the idea of making wallets and handbags and backpacks out of uh, refugee rafts. Uh, as I said, many of the refugees pass through Greece because the islands are close to Turkey where they can get in a boat, a rubber boat, and go. And Lord willing, they get to the island before the rubber boat fails. So they're piles of rubber boats, and she makes things out of them like this. Uh, Afghanistan. And Afghanistan. Yeah, they're from Afghanistan, excuse me. So uh, I was thinking about that. This is rather grisly in a way. It's made of something that people used out of desperation. And we don't know, you know, some might have not have made it to the islands. But, um, but it also represents something redeemed. Uh, Fariba uh, is, I'm, I'm sorry, Susan is, uh, <laughs> I love her so much, it's hard to... It's anyway. okay. She's already been interviewed by Reuters. Her picture's out there, so whatever. <laughs> so so uh, um, she, she is mu Muslim by background, but she's very interested in the gospel. And um, she's redeeming something that's really grisly and dark and into something wonderful. So this represents that redemption. Well, you and I, we represent something that was grisly and dark, a fate headed toward hell. Yet God has redeemed us, and we represent his grace and love and redemption. So I encourage you in that. Um, you want to share a little bit about the family and then prayer request? Yeah. Oh, and I'm supposed to remind you that uh, if you'd like to follow us more closely, we have a sign-up sheet. You can get our prayer email there. Thank you, everybody, um, for praying for us so far and uh, for continuing to pray for us. Uh, on a quick note, um, our two little kids are now young adults. Uh, Clara is 23. She lives in Greenville, South Carolina, where she right now is working as an EMT and uh, about to start a respiratory therapy uh, program there and uh, is dating a young man very seriously. We'll see what happens. 
Um, Josiah, who's 22, just graduated from Belhaven University in music composition uh, and is headed to grad school. Uh, he just got engaged about a month ago, and so we'll be making a flying trip back literally in October for his wedding to Hannah. So we're very thrilled about, about, about that. And um, just other things to pray for, uh, the, these, these 10 to 12 refugee families that, that keep cycling through this, um, this, this uh, apartment building house that our church, our Greek church sponsors, we call it the Vula House because it's in the neighborhood called Vula. Um, but just to pray for them because uh, they have many needs, physical, spiritual, emotional. Um, they need, uh, they need a do documents, legal documents for, for as asylum seekers to be able to either stay in Greece or to move on to another place. Otherwise, they're deemed illegal and probably would be deported back to um, the places where they came from, which is not really uh, a good thing for them. And then secondly, um, for just emotional healing, as you can imagine, they've been through unspeakable trauma. And so they need uh, emotional healing um, for, for, the, for that. And then for spiritual healing, um, as David said, some of them have become Christians, but they're really baby Christians. And so they need to grow in their faith or they uh, come from uh, a Muslim background and really need to uh, hear the gospel, understand it, and to repent and believe. So if you could pray for them. And then um, for the Glafada church, the little teeny tiny Greek evangelical church, you know, Greece is mostly a Orthodox country, and there's only a tiny number of Protestants and believers in the country. So um, the church itself, although they have a really big heart in wanting to reach out and serve, they themselves don't have a lot of resources. So if you could pray for them, that God would provide for them and enable them to continue to serve in their community and with these refugees. And then finally, um, yeah, just for our family, for, for us, um, really quickly, um, David and I, during the pandemic, um, in the past year and a half, we were actually apart for eight months. Unfortunately, um, my mom, who um, lived, my parents were from Milledgeville, my dad passed away in 2018, and my mom got cancer in uh, just before the, the the pandemic, and then was sick during the pandemic and passed away in January. So in Milledgeville, so I spent we spent like eight months of the pandemic apart. So um, we're hoping that is not going to happen again anytime soon. Um, but um, yeah, so just pray for us and for our kids as they're young adults making their way in the world. Um, they both um, love the Lord, and we're very thankful for that. Um, but just uh, pray for them and for us uh, as a family uh, in these crazy times. Thank you so much. Thank you. I want to encourage all of you to um, say hi and stop by their table out front. And absolutely, let's keep David and Aaron and both family, ministry, all of these different things 
uh, in prayer. A couple of other quick announcements. One, a reminder that uh, the baby bottle campaign is uh, continuing, and so we still have a four, few more baby bottles, and we'll be collecting them uh, between now and the 20th of June. That's a couple weeks, so if you've not done that, that helps out the Caring Solutions Ministry. We would encourage you to do that. And then officer nominations for deacon and elder begin today. There's a box out there uh, for you to drop off your nominations for deacon and elder for the class of 2022. And they will be going on through the month of June, ending the 27th of June. So those are some of the things going on in the life of the church. And as the Lord has called us together to glorify and magnify his name, as Lynn leads us in the prelude, Let's prepare our hearts for meeting with the Lord. Our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 34, verses 1 through 3. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Lord, you have called us into this place to lift high your name, to celebrate your grace, and we invite your presence now. We invoke your holy name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to join with us. Fill us with praise. We ask all of these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together and sing the great hymn of the faith, How Firm a Foundation. Mm-hmm. 
may be seated. Wow. We are blessed. That's all I know to say. That soul, that on Jesus, has leaned for repose. I will not, I will not desert to his foes. You know, no matter what you're going through, here's my encouragement to you. Lean into Jesus. Let's together, as God's family, confess what it is we believe. That foundation of faith that we acknowledge and assert together. So in unison... Let us recite the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty, From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's stand again and sing before the throne of God above.
The Lord Most High has bowed down low and poured on me his glorious love. We can never get enough of his love. Part of our response to his love is we respond in prayer. We respond by going before the throne of grace, and prayer is so much more than just our petitions or our needs. Prayer is communion with God, and Jesus himself taught us exactly how to pray in the Lord's Prayer. So let's together in unison pray this prayer that our Savior taught us to pray, and then I will lead us in a time of pastoral prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Father, you have poured on us your glorious love, and your love is constantly tending and nurturing and cultivating in us Christ-likeness, making us more holy helping us to taste and see that you are good. You are our Father who sets our boundaries. You are our Father who disciplines us out of love. You are our Father who protects us and provides for us. You are our shepherd. Lord, we seek to hallow your name, but we could never hallow your name enough. Lord, we come to worship asking that you reform us and that you recalibrate our hearts and that you remake us that you would work to give us more and more a taste and an appetite and a desire for you. And as we have a desire for you, we have a desire for the coming of your kingdom. We pray your kingdom come and your will be done. May your word and your will and your wisdom go forth and come more to earth as it is done perfectly in heaven. And Lord, we are totally dependent upon you for our daily bread whether that be our physical, temporal needs, or spiritually. And so we pray for those who are in need. We pray for those who are suffering physical afflictions, or spiritual, or financial, whatever realm, whatever area they may be. God, you are the God of all comfort and the Father of all mercies. And we ask that you would comfort those who especially need comfort. And we thank you for your holistic ministry that as You comfort us, we then can respond by comforting others. So may we be a comforting people. And may we also be a forgiving people. As we seek your forgiveness, may we forgive others. Lord, I pray, and I pray this each and every week, that we would be a place of grace, that we would be known for grace, that this would be a place where grace can be found, where people will be surprised by your grace. That people will come in seeking and searching and may not even know what they're seeking and searching for. We expect that not everybody who walks through these doors automatically, immediately knows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There may be baggage that they have in their lives and things that they're not too proud of. All of us have that. Every single one of us are flawed and are broken and in need of your grace. And so, Father, create us into a community of love that's set apart, that's holy and being made more and more holy. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For we affirm 
that yours and yours alone is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
You may be seated. Especially on live stream, excuse me, this morning. In my learning curve of the state of Georgia, I discovered something new this week. Allergies. (laughs) So I really do feel fine. Other than, and so I'm so, this is one of those things, there's blessings and curses to everything. And so as I have to clear my throat from time to time, I really am doing fine up here other than, I don't know what I'm allergic to, but I'm allergic to something and it's gotten to me this week. So the text upon which our teaching is based this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, this is the word of the Lord given by the triune God of love because he loves you. Ah, rescue is coming. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. I remember when I did youth ministry with Young Life way, way back when. We would every year take the high school kids. For those of you who don't know, Young Life is a ministry to high school students. And every year we would go on a trip to Saranac Lake in upstate New York, part of the Adirondack Mountains. Absolutely gorgeous. I would look forward to this trip every single year that we would go. And a part of what we did on this trip, it was a week of, you know, suffering for Jesus, tubing and water skiing and going out and seeing the scenery and preaching Jesus. I mean, I learned early in life ministry is fun. One of the things that we did, though, was we would go on a mountain climb each year. And it was, it was not just a walk in a park. It was not, you had to get all your stuff together in your gear. It was not, you know, impossible. It's not like climbing Mount Everest or the Himalayas or anything like that. But it was a challenging mountain climb. You had to actually work at it. And part of the point behind this mountain climb is that it would provide a challenge that by yourself, without the aid of others, you really couldn't do it that it would take the athlete and the non-athlete. It would take everyone working together, and you would present a challenge, and you'd have uh, people who were fearful. You'd have people who were like, let's go, and they were ready to jump way ahead. But what you wanted to do is you wanted to basically present a challenge that says, unless everyone makes it to the top, no one makes it to the top. We're in this together. 
And it's more than what we can do by ourselves. So in other words, like the text in Romans 8, we are all together more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Now we are about to embark on something here at LOPC that is kind of like that. We're beginning a study of Paul's letter to the Romans. And unlike Martin Lloyd-Jones, who spent maybe eight years, if I have that right, and filled up 14 volumes. And yes, if you want to know, I have all 14 volumes on my shelves. And they're already out of the box on my shelves in my study. All 14 volumes. So I can see the looks on people's... I can't see anybody in the live stream, but I can, you know, see you. How long is Jeff going to be spending on... This is his first sermon series, and this is what he is doing? Here's how we're doing it. We're going to break it down into four mini-series following the flow. So it'll take us a couple of years. I set big goals. Have you noticed that? It'll take us a couple years to go through, but we're basically going to follow the flow of Paul's letter... And so we're going to do chapters 1 through 4, and then chapters 5 through 8, and then chapters 9 through 11, and chapters 12 through 16. And we are going to do a mini-series, and then take a break and do something else. A mini-series, and then go on to do something. And I'm going to keep saying, do you remember what we did? And I'll keep going back. But we are together going to climb Paul's Mount Everest. Are you ready? And unless we all make it to the top, none of us make it to the top. We're in this together. We are all, and you're going to say this with me, we are all more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. So you ready? Let's go. Let's introduce Paul's letter to the Romans. And here's the big picture. Here's the theme of the letter. Here's what I want you to remember. The theme of the book of Romans is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 17, which we'll get to next week, Paul called it the unveiling. The apocalypse, if you would. The revelation of the righteousness of God. What I'm calling this morning the comprehensive good news, the comprehensive gospel of Jesus Christ is the theme of the letter to the Romans. So chapters 1 through 4 is a gospel vision. See, the gospel is our only hope. We can't put our hope in programs, people, governments, agendas, anything, organizations. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only hope for mankind. The gospel is God's solution, not only to man's problem. See, the gospel is bigger than, this is why I called it comprehensive. It is not just about individual salvation or the individual's personal, individual relationship with God. See, we're so used to thinking like that. And is that included? Absolutely. But it's bigger and broader than that. Because the gospel is also about God's entire project of making the earth his home or his kingdom. That's why we say the Lord's Prayer each and every week. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. That's why the centerpiece of that prayer is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. See, the gospel, which includes, I would never ever eliminate the individual or the personal, but it includes the renewal of all things, the restoration of all things, begun now and completed at the consummation of all things in the new world. And just to give you a little bit of the situation, so you have a little bit of the background of the letter to the Romans so that we can put each 
kind of constituent part into its whole, okay? One commentator called Romans Paul's big picture theology, but it is much more than theology because it grows out of his missionary work. You didn't realize David and Aaron are not the only missionaries out there, right? We love them and support them, but talk about a foundation. You know what Paul was called? He was called the missionary to the Gentiles, the apostle to the Gentiles. We're so used to studying and reading and looking at everything for its doctrine. And is doctrine there? Of course. I'm not eliminating that. But it is so much more. See, there's a missionary context to this. See, what is Paul doing? His home base as a missionary was in Antioch. And he wanted to go. Remember the beginning of the book of Acts? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He wanted to go where? The ends of the earth. For him and the known ends of the earth, what he was familiar with was westward to a place called Spain. That's what he had in mind. And he wanted Rome to be the home base of his, of his missionary endeavors. So what was he doing? He was soliciting support. Prayer, financial, partnership, all of these things, he was soliciting support. And so even though he couldn't be with the Roman Christians at the time, I love how one commentator put it, it says, Paul cannot be with the Roman Christians for the moment, so what is he doing in the interim? He's gospelizing them. That is to say, he is endeavoring to cultivate a gospel-soaked faith, spirituality, unity, and mission in the Roman church. He is soliciting support for his mission westward to Spain and wants to unify them around a common set of gospel values. Another, in other words, here's what Paul is saying. He, was, he is saying, I long to see you in Rome. It's going to be in the passage we look at next week. I long to visit you. I want us to encourage each other. I want us to build each other up in the faith. But I'm not with you now, so let me tell you what I'm all about. And you know what I'm all about? I'm all about the gospel. From beginning to end, I am about the comprehensive gospel. So this is where we're going to begin this morning. Here's what Paul wants you to know, the beginning of the letter. He wants you to know the gospel. See, if you would, see, I wish Brian Chappell were back for this today to hear me preach because I could say, this is my proposition or my theme. This is what I want you all to know. You need to know the gospel. And in this particular text, we're going to see what does this text teach us about the gospel? Four things. And before you think we'll be here all day, I'll take them very briefly. But four things we're going to learn about the gospel this morning. We're going to learn about the priority of the gospel, the promise of the gospel, the power of the gospel, and the purpose of the gospel. Got that? Four Ps. Priority, promise, power, and purpose. Okay? Paul begins the text, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. See, in the culture of the first century, the Greek culture that Paul is writing to, ancient letters typically would begin very simply. They'd have a sender, they would have recipients, and then there'd be a brief greeting. So it'd be like if I was writing a letter to you, I would say, hi, I'm Jeff, you're who? Hi, greeting. So Paul does the same thing here. If you look at this, Paul goes, Paul, here's the sender, a servant of Christ Jesus, and he goes on for a while with information about himself, the sender. 
before he gets at the end of verse 7, he goes, oh, by the way, to all those in Rome, loved by God, called to be saints, and then the greeting, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he adds quite a bit in elaboration. So verse 1 begins, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, and the actual translation there is he is saying, literally, he means he's a slave of Christ. He's showing his identity and his status. See, your status comes from who you are, who you belong to. And Paul is saying, my status is determined by the fact that I belong to Jesus Christ. That's my identity and my status. Then he identifies his vocation, his office, his authority. He is called to be an apostle. In other words, he's telling them, I am an official representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a little bit more than just a casual letter. I'm an apostle, meaning an official representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice he says, I didn't go to some sort of career day and seek to be an apostle. I didn't sit there and listen to my parents and say, what do you want to do when you grow up? Doctor, lawyer, banker, professional athlete. Oh yeah, apostle. No, this is called by God. His call is initiated by God himself. He represents, in other words, not himself and his interests. He's not about his agenda. He's kind of like, you don't like what I'm saying? It doesn't come from me. I didn't make this up. I'm called, don't get mad at me. Get mad at the one who sent me. Deal with him. God initiated the call. And then I want you to notice something. When he gets to the recipients, just pick up on this. He identifies the believers at Rome, verse 7, with similar language. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things here. First, this language would be very familiar with those who are familiar with the language of the Old Testament. See, in the Old Testament, the people of God were referred to those especially loved by God. They were called God's treasured possession, God's chosen people. And the word saints literally means holy ones. And Israel was referred to as God's holy nation. Now, I want you to notice the order of this here. This is very, very important, and I want you to make application out of this. They are those who are first called loved by God, and then only second called to be saints or holy ones. In other words, the order is first, is so primary. This is the priority of the gospel. You are to know first that you are loved and to be secure and safe in that love. It's like I said a couple of weeks ago, we don't work for the love of God, we work from the love of God. Our holiness is not for the love of God. We're not trying to be holy and say, God, look at all that I've done for you. We're called to be saints, called to be set apart, called to cultivate Christ-likeness, the fruit of the Spirit, the holiness of God, out of that sense of security, out of that sense that we belong. You cannot get more safe than to be loved by God. I love how one commentator put it. He says, the gospel is something, because then he says his whole life has been set apart for, the God, for this gospel of God. And this commentator writes, he says, the gospel is something so great that he is willing to separate himself from anything 
read wealth, read health, read acclaim, read friends, read safety, read reputation, in order to be faithful to it. And how can Paul say it? How can he do this? Because he knows he's loved by God. He's not trying to prove himself. He's not trying to be right. He's not trying to earn a self-image. He's operating out of the love of God. In other words, then he says, since I'm loved by God, everything I do, everything that I am, everything that I'm about is seen through the prism of the gospel. Everything else takes a back seat. Here comes the application. How about us? Do we look at the whole of our lives through the prism of the gospel? Yeah, get ready. I'm going to step on toes now for a second. Do we look at every relationship, how we treat others through the prism of the gospel, how we spend our money, how we post on Facebook or social media? And I know Marion said that several weeks ago to you. He told me that, so I can do that too. Do we think about all of these things through the prism of the gospel, through the lens of do they build up and not tear down? Do they edify and not destroy? Do they further the work of the kingdom of God in Christ? Do we look at the... And how do you do that? Rather than make a point or prove that you're right or get your agenda out there, you have to know you are loved by God. Paul is writing to the church of Rome, and he identifies them. He doesn't say just that you're geographic. To those who are loved by God, that's their primary identity. To those who are a community of the beloved. To those who are primarily loved by God and called to be saints. So the first point, the priority of the gospel. Has the gospel gripped your life that it is the priority of your life? Or is something else more important? Second, the promise of the gospel. Look at verse 2, and here's Paul going on. He's elaborating on the sender portion of the introduction to his letter. He says, the gospel he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, I'm going to be brief here, but this is very important. You know what Paul is doing? He's telling the church at Rome the gospel is not something new. This is not just something, some fad that I've made up. I mean, this is actually something extremely important for us to know. Do you know that the gospel is not just some new thing, that we are connected to the saints of all time from the Old Testament? That we are connected... This is not something new. It's not an invention. It's not a new thing. It's not a fad. One commentator put it, the good news of Jesus is firmly rooted in the soil of the Old Testament. Listen to Jesus' words himself, because this is very consistent with Jesus' message. In Luke chapter 24, the resurrected Jesus is speaking to his disciples, traveling on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus listens to their conversation, talks to them, and he says, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Sometimes I wonder if Jesus knew how to win friends and influence people. That's kind of his first, he's walking along there. Can you see this strolling down the street? And he says hi to them, and he goes, O oh, foolish ones. It's kind of like walking through. He goes, Oh, you guys are so stupid. What are you thinking? And he says, are you so slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken? The prophets spoke where? Old Testament. 
And he says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then he says, and beginning with Moses. Now, think about this. Didn't Moses write the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? So he's talking about the beginning of the Old Testament. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets. That's like hundreds of years later to the Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel folks. Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, what is the Bible about? Genesis to Revelation, beginning to end. The Bible is about Jesus. Former president of the seminary that I went to, Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, Dr. Edmund Clowney, one of my heroes in the faith, wrote a great book called Discovering Christ in the Old Testament. And listen to how he put the promise of the gospel He wrote this way. He says, there are great stories in the Bible, but it is possible to know Bible stories yet miss the Bible story. He writes, the Bible has a storyline. It traces an unfolding drama. The story follows the history of Israel, but it does not begin there, nor does it contain what you would expect in a national history. He writes, if we forget the storyline, we cut the very heart out of the Bible. Sunday school stories are then told as tamer versions of the Sunday comics, where Samson substitutes for Superman. David becomes a Hebrew version of Jack the Giant Killer. Clowney writes, no, David is not a brave little boy who isn't afraid of the big bad giant. He is the Lord's anointed. God chose David as a king after his own heart in order to prepare the way for David's great son, our deliverer and champion. Notice where Paul begins. Set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the promise of the gospel. Next, look at the power of the gospel, verses 3 and 4. And what is the gospel about? He says, he promised the gospel beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son. Concerning his son. The gospel is about Jesus. Is there doctrine in it? Yes, but it's not about doctrine. It's about Jesus. Are there principles in it? Of course. But is it about those principles? No, it's about Jesus. And then who is this Jesus? He was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. These verses very succinctly summarize the mission or the vocation of Christ. This is the power of the gospel. Now, we have to be very careful how we interpret it. Because different translations do different things with this. So, for example, I'm reading out of the ESV. But the NIV, for example, makes it read like the verses are describing the two natures of Christ. His human nature and his divine nature. That he's 100% human and 100% divine. Now, is that true? Of course that's true. Is Paul denying that? Of course not. He's assuming that, but I agree with the commentators who say that is not fundamentally what he's talking about here in verses 3 and 4. And there are a couple of reasons for that. The first is that the verb in verse 4 
that is translated declared. So you see where it says that in verse 4? Has the meaning of appointed or designated. So one writer puts it this way. He says, thus this verse does not mean that the resurrection made clear what Jesus already was. He already was the Son of God. He's always been the Son of God. He's never not been divine. This verse isn't teaching that. Rather, it qualified him to attain an entirely new status. This does not mean that Jesus became Son of God at the time of his resurrection. He always was God's Son, but he did become the Son of God in power. That means that when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, his whole mission, his whole vocation was validated, was vindicated, and he was appointed, designated, and given authority in history to bring about and to dispense salvation to all who would believe in him. So as another commentator put it, these verses do not assert the two natures of Christ. They don't deny it. They assume it. But rather what they do is they describe the two stages in history of his existence or ministry. That's why he says concerning his son descended from David according to the flesh. Flesh there doesn't mean human nature. It means according to the old age, the age of corruption, the age of brokenness, the age of everything deteriorated. Jesus entered that. As the writer to the hymn that we sang said, he made himself low. He came from heaven to earth. See, the contrast is between the flesh or the old age and the spirit or the new age. The spirit or the new era inaugurated by Christ specifically by his resurrection implemented by the Holy Spirit. It's what elsewhere the scriptures, the New Testament calls the first fruits of the new creation. In other words, Jesus bringing the end of history into the middle of history and launching it now, beginning it now. I don't know about you, but that's power. I just want to pause here for a second. Do we understand, do we even have a clue about the power of the gospel? I mean, we're going to touch about this again next week where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God. But in the gospel, by the resurrection, Jesus is launched. Talk about security. If you're in Christ, you're secure in Christ. You're already secure in the end of history. We know how the story ends. We should be the most confident people in all the world. We are not only a community of love, we are a community of the new age, the new era. We are part of that first fruits of the new creation, the first fruits of the new world or the world to come. Has it been completed? Of course not. Of course, that's why we pray, thy kingdom come. And lastly, what is the purpose of the gospel? What is Paul's aim, his goal, his purpose? He says in verse 5, through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience of faith. Now, what does that mean, the obedience of faith? It's, a, it's kind of a popular, familiar term Paul uses. What does that mean? Does it mean that faith in Christ leads to obedience? Or does it mean an obedience that can be described as faith? And you all are thinking, trick question? 
or yes? See, in some ways, the answer is yes, but it doesn't do justice to kind of the dynamic that Paul is describing and the dynamic connection in the scriptures between faith and obedience. See, we have to be careful of a couple of things. One of the things we have to be careful not to think of faith as kind of a first stage in our Christian life. So I have faith, and then kind of I'm waiting a while, I'm waiting a while, I'm waiting, and all of a sudden I get obedience. That's not really how it works. And we also have to be careful that we don't collapse obedience into faith. Like, all I have to do is believe, and then it doesn't matter how I live. That's not really what Paul is talking about either. It's not a two-stage process of discipleship where the first stage is to receive Christ and the second stage is to follow Christ, nor do you merge faith and obedience together like they're the same thing. I want you to picture it this way. This is the simplest way I know to describe it. Picture it as two sides of the same coin. Those two, the two sides of the same coin, like if you have a heads and a tails, you distinguish if we're playing football or some sport out there, right, and we flip, there's a distinguish, a distinction between heads and tails, isn't there? On most coins, at least, there is. You've got heads, tails. It's distinguishable, but inseparable. The same thing can be said with the obedience of faith. One writer put it this way, faith, if genuine, will always produce a changed life in some way, shape, or form. And obedience, if true obedience, must be accompanied by faith. In other words, obedience is never the basis of our assurance. Our works, our obedience is always imperfect, always lacking, always incomplete, always inconsistent. They can never be the basis or the standing or of our standing with and before God. But faith in Christ, if it's real, true faith in Christ, will produce a changed life. You will have new desires. You become, what does Paul say? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, and how do we become in Christ? By simple faith. What's the reality if you are in Christ? You are a new person. You are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So what is the Christian life about? It is about learning and cultivating and growing in our allegiance to Christ over our whole lifetime in the assurance, the rock-solid assurance that we're loved by God. I'm going to close this way. Remember the order to the church in Rome, those loved by God and called to be saints. To my family here at Lake Oconee at LOPC, loved by God and called to be saints. Okay, we've put on our packs. We've taken our first step towards Mount Everest. We're in it together, right? Let's keep going. Father, thank you so much that this is the comprehensive good news of Jesus that Paul is proclaiming not only produces an initial conversion, but a transformed life. And so we do look and ask, Father, that you would transform us. And we don't know what all that looks like. We have some parameters. It looks like the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. It looks like things like 1 Corinthians 13. I pray that you will teach us, though, that we are loved by God and called to be saints.
In Jesus' name, amen. And let's stand and sing our closing hymn this morning, Jesus, What a Friend for Sinners.
shepherd's benediction. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen.